Are we okay? Somebody wave. Okay. Thumbs up. Go right ahead. Where was I? We're talking about John as the witness. Remember, the controlling purpose of the gospel is that John the Apostle is, is talking about these signs. There are seven signs in the gospel. It says, these signs are given that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So he is going to make a case, and his case is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So that we can then respond to that in faith. See, faith is not this sort of subjective impression that somehow I have liver quiver, that somehow I have this feeling in my gut that this is true. See, that is not based on content. That's not based on reason. That's not based on facts. That is a view of faith that is really faith in faith. It is subjectivism and it is comparable to mysticism. But that is not the kind of faith that the Apostle John is teaching us about. He is talking about faith that is based on reason, I mean based on evidence, and faith that is based on fact. It is a faith that is consistent with reason, not based on reason, but is consistent with reason. It is rational. It is not irrational. It is based on objective data, not subjective impressions. So that we can evaluate the case that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So in doing that, he is going to marshal several witnesses who give their testimony throughout this this epistle, I mean this gospel. And the first two witnesses that we meet in chronological order, first of all, John the Baptist, John B, distinguish him from John A, the apostle, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. These are the two the two witnesses that he begins with. Now, as we go through the, the gospel, the first 18 verses provide the prologue, and then we have the public presentation of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist, and in the first two chapters, we go through the first week in the life uh, of Jesus. The first It covers about a month. Cover four days in the life of John the Baptist, where uh, concludes with Jesus leaving uh, the area where John was baptizing, and then going to Cana, where he uh, turned the water into wine, and that covered a, per- a seven-day period, chapter the last part of chapter one down through two eleven, and then just a few weeks later he makes his first trip to Jerusalem. So we have, in terms of the outline, the public presentation of Jesus. We have from 1.19 down through 2.11 is the first week. And then from 2.12 down through the end of chapter 3, we have Jesus' ministry in Judea. And then he will leave Judea. And last week, we saw that there is a progression in this week in Judea, that Jesus goes into Jerusalem to the temple where he cleanses the temple to show that he is the Messiah. This was a prophesied role of the Messiah. His claim to be Messiah was clearly understood by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They rejected him. He then goes into Jerusalem itself, and we have the conversation with Nicodemus. Then he moves out into the region, the countryside of Judea, and at the end of chapter 3, or the beginning of chapter 4, he will leave Judea. Another dynamic takes place that we have to understand in these chapters is the the literary style of John the Apostle. He tells us an event and then he gives us his commentary on it. He tells us about Jesus cleansing the temple and then he says in verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all Men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then we're going to see a couple of examples of what was in man, the first of which is Nicodemus, and the second of which is the uh, Pharisees and their attempt to divide the followers of John the Baptist from the followers of Jesus and to create a division in the movement. And that's in John 3:22 to 30, which we studied last week. 
But we've seen this style where there's an event and then there's commentary. Event and commentary. The next event was Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. And that ended in John 3.15. And then John gives us his apostolic commentary starting in verse 16 down through 21. Then he gives us another event. The event of the attempt to divide the followers of John the Baptist from the followers of Jesus. In verses 22 through 30. And we saw that last week John shows tremendous, genuine humility by recognizing that it is his role to diminish and it is the role of Jesus to increase. And then in verse 31, John gives us his commentary on John the Baptist's statement. That's where we are. That's the introduction. To understand this, we see in the second part, to re- related to the theme of the, of the gospel, there's a twofold witness to the light. There was the very important statement that John the, John the Apostle makes in verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. This is a general principle of negative volition. People who are negative to the Scriptures hate the light. They hate doctrine. They hate doctrinal teaching because it exposes them. They do not come to the light, lest their deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth, that is the person who is truly positive, who really wants to know the truth, who really wants to understand what the Scripture says, continually comes to the light. They expose themselves to the teaching of the Word, that their deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So that introduces the theme of the light. And then there's a twofold witness to the light. John, who we were told in, back in John 1.6, came as a witness to the light. In verses 22 through 30, we see him as the witness in the rejection of the darkness. The the Pharisees reject his ministry and seek to divide him. And then there is a return to the second witness, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what John says about him in verses 31 through 36. Now, all of that is by way of introduction to help us understand the context of these six verses. We have to begin with understanding the doctrine of the witnesses in the Scripture. There are six different witnesses who are set up by John the Apostle in his explanation uh, of the Gospel. The first, by way of importance, not in way of order of appearance in the text, the first is the witness of God the Father. We're going to understand something about witnessing when we evaluate these. The first witness, the first one to give a testimony of who Jesus is, is God the Father. Now, why do we start here? Why, as you look at this, all these witnesses, the majority of them tend to be deity. Why? Because of what is in man. Remember what John says back in verse 23 of chapter, or verse 24 of chapter 2. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Because of the depravity of man, we're not looking at too many human witnesses. The first witness is the Father, John 5.37. Jesus says, And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. Now, is this just a subjective witness? Just some sort of internal impression that somehow God has done this? Not at all. Remember what took place at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry? Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. At the baptism of Jesus. God the Father speaks from heaven in an audible voice, which could clearly be heard and understood by everyone present. There were perhaps hundreds, maybe even thousands of people present to hear the uh, teaching ministry of John the Baptist. And when this individual came out of the crowd and was baptized in the river Jordan, then suddenly a voice boomed from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. If you had been there with your tape recorder, you could have recorded the voice of God. It was objective reality, not subjective impression. Now, you won't see that in any uh, Hollywood film made of the life of Christ, because they think religion is pure subjective, subjectivity and not objective, but the Bible says this is objective reality. So there is an objective witness. God the Father spoke from heaven 
authenticating Jesus of Nazareth as his beloved son. So that's the first witness. The second witness that John marshals for us in terms of their uh, significance is Jesus Christ himself. We find this in John 8:14. John 8:14. Jesus answered and said to them, "Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Why? Because he is God. He has made the claim to deity. He has all of the attributes of deity. He is undiminished deity. He is veracity as part of the attributes of God, absolute truth. So if he is absolute truth and he is immutable and cannot lie, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, then his witness is absolute truth. Even if I bear witness of myself, and it's interesting, this word martyreo, which is translated witness, is a legal term. It has to do with presenting your witness and your testimony in a court of law. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from. Nobody else would. I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So, Jesus is making this claim, but this is not simply a claim uh, uh, based on his own perception. This is not as if you or I were to come out or somebody were to come out and say that they were God. Well, who are you to make that claim? Jesus has already given much evidence in his, in his life through miracles and through his omniscience, expressing his knowledge on many different occasions. He demonstrated that he knew what no ordinary human being could know. So when he is dialoguing, confronting the Pharisees in John chapter 8, when he says, if I bear witness of myself, they understand that he has already borne witness through his acts, as in the cleansing of the temple back in John chapter 2, and through the expression of his omniscience. Now, one of the problems we have relates to trying to understand a passage in Philippians chapter 2. Hold your place here and let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is one of the most important passages on Jesus Christ in all of the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul says, have this attitude. This is an imperative. It's a mandate. It's from the verb proneo, means to think this way. Have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Literally, the word for form is the Greek word morphe, which means inner essence. Though he existed in the inner essence of God, having all the attributes of deity, he did not regard that something to grasp after. He was willing to leave heaven and go to earth, but emptied himself. Now, this is where we get the controversy. The Greek word here is from the verb kanao, K-E-N-O-O. The noun form is kenosis. This is a great problem, the kenosis problem. What does kenosis mean? What does it mean that he emptied himself? You have a lot of different discussions on it, and I don't want to take the time this morning to go through it, but it doesn't mean that Jesus gave up anything. He didn't give up or leave any attributes of deity in heaven when he came to earth. What it means is that Jesus Christ voluntarily restricted. It doesn't even mean that he didn't perform as God, because he did the Shekinah glory. Obviously, we've seen passages like John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came saying one thing, and Jesus answered what was really in his mind. Jesus used his deity, his omniscience, to answer the real question in Nicodemus' mind. So it doesn't mean that he didn't operate in the omni-characteristics, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. Because even, obviously, he was still omnipresent, because, and omnipotent because throughout all this time, according to Colossians 1, 18, 17 and 18, he held the world together. He continues to hold the world together. 
What it means is that Jesus Christ voluntarily restricted the independent use of His divine attributes. He willingly restricted the independent use of His divine attributes. That means He was still undiminished deity and true humanity. He didn't flaunt His deity, but He willingly restricted it for a while during the first advent, during the period of the Incarnation. And so he was, he was complete veracity. Everything he said was true so that his testimony about himself was absolutely true. So we have the first witness being God the Father, second witness being Jesus Christ, and the third witness in order of significance is God the Holy Spirit. The witness of the Holy Spirit. This took place, first of all, at the River Jordan. God the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Just as God the Father objectively spoke from heaven, announcing to all who were present that this was His Son with whom He was well pleased, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended upon Jesus Christ, indicating that He indwelt the Lord Jesus Christ and was the empowerment of His ministry. So the Holy Spirit is the third witness to Jesus Christ. John 15:26 Jesus says, "When the helper comes, that is in reference to God the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me." And then in John 16:13, "But when he the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth." For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, this is not a subjective witness. Too many people want to take these passages as divine guidance, but it is not subjective. This has to do with what? With the witness related to the Scriptures, that God the Holy Spirit would come and he would, uh, through in, uh through the apostles and under the doctrine of inspiration, he would make sure that they accurately communicated everything about Jesus Christ. So the third witness in the gospel is the Holy Spirit. The fourth witness that John the Apostle calls to the courtroom stand to give testimony of his his contention is the miracles of Jesus. The miracles that Jesus performed. It's not just his his words, but his works. John 5.36 But the witness, this is that same word again, the testimony, legal testimony, which I have, is greater than that of John. Jesus is speaking in John 5.36. The witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So his miracles, healing the blind, healing the lame, raising the dead. All of these, these healings in Scripture, notice, deal with constitutional defects. They are not the kinds of fraudulent healings and superficial healings of headaches and leg lengthening and all the other sorts of uh, things that go on in so-called healing services today. But they were constitutional problems. And if you evaluate and go through and analyze all the healing passages passages in Scripture, in many cases the people who are healed are not believers. There's no evidence or indication that they are seeking healing to begin with. And there is no evidence that they became believers afterwards or had any level of faith whatsoever. It was just accomplished. For example, when Peter and John are going to the temple in Acts 4, The lame man there does not go up to them to seek to be healed. They just heal him. Powerful testimony. It gives, uh, it provides credentials for the ministry that a person is who he claimed to be. And the healings involve constitutional defects, deep problems. If someone today were to have the gift of healing legitimately, you would not find them isolating their ministry to some local church where the environment is controlled but you would find them walking up and down the aisles of the cancer wards in the hospitals, healing those who had cancer 
uh, restoring the use of, of limbs to those who are crippled and paralyzed. That's the function of the healing. That's how that gift functioned in the New Testament. These miracles were phenomenal, and the people who who witnessed them knew that the individuals involved had had these constitutional defects all of their life. The fifth witness is the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And that's good. It is these, Jesus said, that bear witness of me. Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. No jot or tittle will pass away until all has come to pass. The sixth witness that John marshals is John the Baptist, whom we have studied extensively in this, minute, in, in this, uh, in this series, and he will pass from the scene before long. And then seventh, the seventh witness that is marshaled here is the witness of those who have met Jesus and believed on Him. Other believers who have seen what He did. John chapter 4. After Jesus witnessed to the woman at the well, she ran into town excited about what she had heard and what she had learned. And she told everybody about what Jesus had done and what he had said. And John 4.41 says, And many more believed because of his word. They went out and they heard him. And they, they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. And so the and then John 12.17, And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. See, they knew what Jesus had done. They testified to the fact that he had resuscitated Lazarus from the dead and that Lazarus had indeed been dead. So it is their objective witness. So what John says is there are seven objective witnesses that give their testimony that Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the One who came from heaven to earth, and that by believing you might have life in His name. That if you reject the claims of Christ, then you are calling all of these witnesses into question. And by under the Mosaic Law and under most law in human history... All that is necessary in order to substantiate a point is that there be two witnesses. And yet John goes above and beyond that and he gives us seven distinct witnesses to establish the principle that it is beyond question. So that if you reject the claims of Christ as Savior, it is not because there is a lack of evidence. It is for a much deeper reason and that is the reason uh, given by Paul in Romans 1, 18 and 19, that you have rejected God, and you are antagonistic to God, and you are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's not because you cannot understand it, or it is not accurately presented or given evidence. It is that you reject that evidence, and that there is no amount of evidence that will ever convince you, and it has nothing to do with reason, rationalism, or empiricism. See, man wants to come to truth on the basis of either rationalism or empiricism. Rationalism starts with the human principles in the human mind. Descartes is the classic example of this. He tried to... Uh, determine ultimate reality just starting on first principles alone. And his uh, initial way of trying to arrive at truth was through the use of the principle of doubt. He said, well, maybe I, my senses don't give me accurate information. Maybe I really think I see a blue car and it's a red car. Maybe it's not even a car at all. Maybe God is just giving me this grand hallucination and uh, I just exist, you know, there's just this thing in the mind of God, and I really don't 
you know, there's no objective reality, just sort of an, in the mind of God sort of thing. I think a lot of people have thought these kinds of things at one time or another when you're a kid, thinking crazy thoughts. Well, is, it, there, is there really an external reality, or is it just some grand illusion and grand hoax? And so he used the principle of doubt. And then he said, well, how do I know if I really exist? And then he came up with his famous statement in the Latin, cogito ergo sum, Translated says, I think, therefore, I am. He said, because I think, I must exist. I have consciousness. And because I have consciousness, I at least know I exist. So let's see if anything else exists. So from his starting point here, this first principle of his own thinking, he tries to go out side of himself to prove the existence of external reality and ultimately the existence of God and he just can't do it and ultimately he fails and falls into the error of what's called solipsism from soul, S-O-L-E meaning meaning that a person in this just really can't think outside themselves so rationalism ultimately fails to arrive at absolute truth also rationalism is built upon the whole principle of, of logic Not that there is anything wrong with logic inherently, but rationalism says that starting from these first principles on the basis of logic alone, I can arrive at at absolute truth. There are two types of logic. There is deductive logic, which sets up syllogisms and arrives at absolute truths. But those absolute truths are controlled by your premises. If your premises are false, then your conclusions are false. The law of logic, if your premises are true, then your conclusion is necessarily true. But how do you come up with those ultimate first premises? Those ultimate first premises are usually what's called in logic and philosophy first principles based on assumptions. Because ultimately you just can't prove those assumptions. So that deductive logic has inherent weaknesses. Then there's inductive logic. But the most you can get from inductive logic is probability. You can go out and you can uh, look at a hundred Christmas trees and they're all green. And from that you'll say, conclusion, Christmas trees are green. Then you go out and you look at another 800 Christmas trees. And they're all green. And you say, my, my original hypothesis that Christmas trees are green has been confirmed. All Christmas trees were green. Then you go somewhere and somebody has an aluminum tree. Remember when those were were popular? And now you have to scratch your head and and your whole theory has to be revamped. Christmas trees are not all green. So inductive logic at best can only get you probability, but there is always the chance that even after evaluating a million instances of something, that there will always be that one more that you will discover that forces you to reevaluate and completely revamp your total interpretation of everything else. So inductive logic can't get you there. What about empiricism? We have seen this before in in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, and John emphasizes that again here in verse 31. Verses Verses 31 through 36 are a fitting conclusion to Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem and Judea. John's comment. After John the Baptist has recognized that his ministry will be necessarily on the decline because of God's plan and purposes for his life, and that Jesus' ministry will increase because he is, after all, the Messiah, the Son of God, John the Apostle comments. Verse 31, he who comes from above, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. His origin is from above. He is from heaven. He is above all. In contrast, including above all, all mankind is even John the Baptist. Jesus is superior, that's why he increases. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. But he who comes from heaven is above all. Now, this should remind you of what Jesus said back in verse uh, 11 through 13 in his conversation with Nicodemus. This is how John is weaving these threads together for us. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen. 
and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. What's his point? The point Jesus is making is in regard to empiricism. Empiricism is the collection of observable data in order to substantiate a conclusion. Two axes on our chart that we've used before. I want to drill this into your mind so that you can remember this. This is the uh, y-axis here is going to represent space. This is the x-axis here is going to represent time. In terms of observable data by any one single human being, our observation of time is limited by a microsecond or part of a second on the one hand up to our lifetime on the other hand. Perhaps with the use of instruments we can expand this line a little more to the left and on this side We can expand it a little further by appealing to historical record. But the further back we go in history, the less record that we have. In terms of space, the smallest space that we can observe uh, is probably subatomic with the use of instruments. And the largest is the largest object available. This creates the box of our experience. Everybody is limited, no matter who you are, no matter your education, no matter your background, what your IQ is, what your, uh, how many degrees you have. You are limited empirically by this box. Jesus is saying, I come from outside the box. I come from heaven. I don't come from the finite experience of earthly bound human beings who are limited in their knowledge and limited in their experience. I come from heaven. I come from above. John 3.13 No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. As the one who comes from heaven into earthly reality, I am the only one who can speak authoritatively about what is in heaven. Because I am the only one who has been there. Because you are inside the box, any 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 concepts you come up with that are outside the box are pure conjecture based upon what's inside the box. But I'm coming from outside the box so I can speak authoritatively about what is outside the box. And if you will not believe me, when I tell you about things that are inside the box, things you already should know about, how will you believe me when I tell you about things that are outside the box, things that relate to heaven. So John picks up this theme in his conclusion to the chapter and he says, He who comes from above is above all, and this is in reference to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in his undiminished deity, he is superior to all men, all prophets, including John the Baptist. He who is of the earth, i.e. John the Baptist or other prophets, is from the earth and speaks of the earth. Their knowledge is limited. They are inside the box. Yet he who is from who comes from heaven is above all. In verse 32, we see his reference, his witness, the testimony that he gives. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness. This is a figure of speech here because it implies that Jesus came to learn things. But Jesus is omniscience. Omniscience is one of those concepts that hard for us to fully grasp. Omniscience means that God knows all the knowable. There never was a time when God did not know everything He knows today. That means that God doesn't learn anything. He knows everything. Instantly and intuitively. He has an absolute intuitive knowledge of everything that will ever happen and everything that could ever happen. His omniscience includes all of the actual and all of the possible. He never learns anything. He never acquires any new knowledge. He knows everything. Nothing surprises him. Just as sort of an aside, that means that there is an infinite amount of things to learn. 
When people get the concept that when we go to heaven, we're not going to have a whole lot to do. What are we going to do? Won't it be kind of boring? We have an infinite amount of things to learn. And we have an eternity in which to learn it. That's what's going to happen in heaven. We are going to take with us to heaven that which we have learned in our life today, the spiritual capacity that we have. That's what you start off with when you arrive in heaven, is your capacity right that you develop right here and now. And from what we've learned in our study of James on Wednesday night, for those of you who haven't been here, is that there are certain things that can only be learned in the matrix. That's a nice 90s word, isn't it? In the matrix of suffering and endurance, which means those who do not pass the tests and learn the doctrine that are, that's supposed to be learned in the midst of those tests will never have the opportunity or never be able to learn those things once they're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. So there will always be a certain lack in some believers throughout all eternity because of their failures here on earth. Now that does not mean that there is not eternal bliss in heaven or regret because all that will pass away and God will wipe away every tear and all of these things will be forgotten. But when we think about the omniscience of God, we're going to be learning from God throughout all of eternity. For those of you who like to learn, Nothing can be more exciting. For those of you who never liked school, that may be uh, somewhat discouraging, but since you will not have a sin nature, you will love learning. (laughs) So the reference here is to Jesus. It's somewhat anthropomorphic here because Jesus doesn't come to knowledge. He has omniscience. He's always known everything. But John is seeking to apply this in terms of a human witness. What he has seen and heard of outside the box in heaven, everything that he has seen and heard in heaven, that he bear, of that he bears witness. He has come inside the box to tell us about God and to tell us about salvation, to tell us about the spiritual life and of what that consists. All of this is the thrust of, of Jesus' revelation. Verse 33, he who has received his witness. Who is the one who has received his witness? It's very interesting to look at the adjectival participles that John uses through here. The one who has received, and then the one who believes. The one who is above all. He continually uses these these participles. The one who has received his witness is comparable to what is said in verse 21. He who practices The truth comes to the light. The light is the revelation of God, the witness of God. He who receives that witness, that which has been revealed, has set his seal to this, that God is true. Now, what does that mean, has set his seal to this? That is a Greek idiom which means to attest something as true, to claim that something is true, to put your to accept it as true, to put your stamp of approval on it, that this is a true statement, to sign off on it as true. That's the idiom. So what John says is the person who accepts Jesus' witness. And what is Jesus' witness? That He is the Son of God. That He has come to die on the cross as our substitute. So what He has seen, uh, so He who has received His witness, that is a person who has accepted what Jesus Christ claims about Himself, has Put his seal of approval to it. You have attested it to be true and that God himself is true. This is a reference to, again, to the essence of God, that God is veracity. Absolute truth. Another way that John, the writer, says this is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is absolute truth. Verse 34. For he... Whom God has sent speaks the words of God. This again refers to Jesus Christ as having been sent by God. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. He communicates absolute divine revelation. For he gives the Spirit. And there's an ellipsis here. Ellipsis is a... We do this all the time where we leave certain words out in the midst of a sentence. 
because the, it's obviously understood by everything else that is in the sentence. And what is ellipsized here, what is left out, is the phrase, to him. For he gives the Spirit to him without measure. Only to Jesus Christ was this Holy Spirit given without measure. Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah would have the sevenfold Spirit of God, seven being the number of completion. So there it is, the prophecy is described that Jesus would have the fullness of the Spirit. And here John the Apostle writes that Jesus, he, Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit without measure. At Jesus Christ, spiritual life was empowered by God the Holy Spirit. This is very important. God the Holy Spirit is the power not only of the spiritual life of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of the believer in the church age. And Jesus Christ, during the period of the Incarnation, during those 33, approximately 33 years that He was on the earth, was filled constantly by the Holy Spirit, and He was pioneering the spiritual life that would become the norm for the church age believer. So that the precedent for spirituality in the church age is not based, put an X here, it's not based back here in the Mosaic Law, which is what we've been studying the first hour in Galatians chapter 3. When Paul said to the Galatians, You foolish Galatians, have you begun by means of the Holy Spirit, but are now trying to be perfected by means, or matured by means of the law? No, you see, the precedent for spirituality in the church age is not the Mosaic Law. It's the spiritual life that was manifested and demonstrated by Jesus Christ during the Incarnation. He was filled by means of God the Holy Spirit, and His life was our example. That's the precedent. The precedent for the spiritual life of the church age is in the Incarnation, not in the Old Testament in the Mosaic Law. Verse 34 states, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. This is the delegation of authority from the Father to the Son. He has given, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, as we look at all of this, I want to back up a minute. Because the thrust of what John is saying in all of this is that your starting point for understanding anything about life, your starting point is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, by saying it that way, does that exclude the Old Testament? Not at all. Because Jesus Christ affirmed everything in the Old Testament. In fact, He's the one who revealed the Old Testament. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, 2 verse 20, all of the Bible is the mind of Christ. This is the starting point. Earlier I talked about rationalism and empiricism. Now, there's nothing wrong inherently with the use of reason or the use of experience. The problem is, is that your starting point? See, rationalism says you start with human reason and you use logic to go to absolute truth on the basis of reason alone. Empiricism says you start with human experience as your final criteria for truth and you develop everything logically from that. Mysticism is rationalism gone to seed. And mysticism is simply saying that that you start off with whatever you want to think is true and you just make whatever true to be true on the basis of irrationalism. See, it's, it's the opposite, and it just leads to disorder and chaos. But reason and experience. Now, what the Scripture says is the starting point is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who came from heaven and tells us what absolute truth is. So even though we can understand certain things to a certain level to be true, such as 2 plus 2 equals 4, when it comes to understanding it as an absolute, if, we are, if our starting point is human reason or human experience, which always leads to some form of relativism and the rejection of absolutes, how can you have scientific absolutes, such as 2 plus 2 equals 4, if you reject absolutes and you think the ultimate, uh, the ultimate reality in the universe is chance, according to the theory of evolution? 
Those are inconsistent, but we don't want to. That's a bugaboo for modern science, and so we don't want to bring that up. Um, your starting point has to be what the Scripture says, and then you build upon that. So if you're going to understand history, you have to start with the Scriptures. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to understand everything. That doesn't mean we have all the data. But if we don't understand history or the family or politics or law or society from the starting point of what God says about it, then we will always be askew because empiricism and rationalism are completely inadequate to give us uh, truth about those things. So our starting point is Jesus Christ. He is the one who has been given all things into his hand. So the starting point is the Lord Jesus Christ. Rationalism and empiricism are not inconsistent with that, but they must be used under the umbrella here, I'll use, do it this way. Under the umbrella of revelation, you then use reason and experience. Let me give you a somewhat silly analogy. If man can just use reason and experience independently, then you might go to a creature like the ant and say, okay, I'll go to the ant and see how the ant lives. And the ant builds a, builds a nest or... Um, and the, there's a, one queen, and then there's all these males that are workers and slaves to the queen. Well, maybe that's how we ought to organize human society. So you have nothing to control that. I mean, that's as valid as anything else if you're operating on pure, pure empiricism. But the Bible says, no, there's certain ways in which you can use that anal- the analogy to ants and certain ways you can't. The Bible says, go to the ant to observe how the ant works. And you have a work ethic that is comparable to the way the ant works continually, diligently, and persistently. But if you try to apply anything else from ants, it's illegitimate and it doesn't work. See, the Bible says, in thy light, O God, that is revelation, we see light. We're able to understand what goes on in the created order because we have the umbrella of divine revelation to give us the frame of reference for understanding everything within the creation. So Jesus comes from outside the box, inside the box, to tell us how to understand everything that is inside the box. And to the degree that we start from Scripture, to that degree we can have an accurate perception of every detail within creation. Father loves the Son. He's given all things into His hand. And then the conclusion to the whole chapter. He who believes in the Son. Notice it doesn't say, he who believes and is baptized, he who believes and joins the church, he who believes and is circumcised, he who believes and follows the Mosaic law, he who believes and commits himself. doesn't say anything like that. Incidentally, that's one of the biggest problems today that's being promoted, is that faith is defined by many people as commitment. But that's absurd. Faith is not commitment. Faith is to trust to believe, to accept something is true. That's all it means. It does not mean commit. That is a completely different concept that, is, that has to do with things in the spiritual life and nothing to do with salvation itself. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That is their eternal possession. But he who does not obey, notice the shift in words. This is a very important shift. The one who believes has eternal life. But the one who is disobedient, the one who does not believe, who, who does not obey. Notice it doesn't say the one who does not believe. Why is that? Because it is a command. What is the command? The command is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If you obey the command and believe, you will have eternal life. The issue here is not obedience to the law, obedience to every mandate in Scripture. The issue is one particular mandate. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will not be saved. This is clear from the earlier statement John wrote in John 3.18. He who believes in Him is not judged. But he who does not believe, notice there, he doesn't say anything else, he doesn't add anything. The issue is belief. 
He who does not believe has been judged already. Then verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Not just existence without end, but a quality of existence. Jesus said, I came not like the thief to destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. It is a quality of life. We have new life in Christ at the moment of salvation, but we discover its depth and its breadth only as we grow by learning the Word and applying it in our lives and growing towards spiritual maturity. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's how John concludes. The one who does not obey the Son, that is, does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Continual, everlasting punishment. Well, that concludes the third chapter of John. We have a major transition in the, in the next chapter as we go into a new stage in his ministry. And we will cover that after Christmas with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you again for this great privilege to study your word and the clarity of what you have revealed in your word. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, who is uncertain of whether or not they are saved, that they would take the opportunity right now in the privacy of their own soul to utter the words formed by thought alone, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's all it takes. It's not simply just a recitation of the words, but it is an internal conviction that this is true. That Jesus died as your substitute. And that by believing, you will have life in His name. You don't have to do anything else. It's not an issue of uh, trying to convince God you're serious. It's not an issue of working for your salvation or following out any set pattern. Simply faith alone in Christ alone. And God promises that at that instant you are born again, regenerated, you are given new life in Christ, which you can never, ever lose. Father, we thank you for what we have learned from your word, from studying John, for the witnesses that testify to the objective reality of what we believe. That this is not something dreamed up by people who just had a, a religious orientation, but that this is something that happened in space-time history as you sent the eternal second person of the Trinity into space-time history, where he became a man, united true humanity with undiminished deity, so that he could go to the cross to take upon himself our sin punishment. And there, because of his substitutionary death, we have the opportunity of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. We thank you for this in the name of Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.